You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy, Australia's foremost medical program that's hosted by a psychiatrist and a nurse on Sunday mornings in Melbourne. Today we bring you a steaming pile of bugs and not the Morton Bay kind either. In fact, not anything you can see with the naked eye. Today's bugs are the itsy bitsy teeny ones that make you sick. Bacteria, viruses and the like. And in the studio we have two of Australia's Australia's best bug doctors. Dr Andrew Stewartson is an infectious disease specialist at the Alfred Hospital and a senior, you don't look that old, senior research fellow at Monash University. Globetrotting in his studies from the World Health Organization in Geneva to Harvard University, Andrew cultivated an international flavor to his public health policy and infections. And he's returned to share his experiences with us. In particular, one of the most scariest bugbears of all, antibiotic resistance. Andrew will be telling us why this is the climate change issue of the microbiology world. I'm not gilding the lily too much, Andrew, am I? No, good. Dr. Lindsay Grayson is a towering figure among... Professor. (laughs) Professor, excuse me, Professor... Lindsay Grayson, is a towering figure. I'll put your microphone on. Towering figure. Third time. It's got to be true. Uh, Amongst infectious disease physicians. When he talks, doctors stop and listen. And what do you think might be one of the things that uh, Professor Grayson talks about most? He thinks it's the most important, one of the most important issues in our hospitals. It's something so simple, so easy, so effective in saving lives, yet we still have trouble actually doing it. If you said hand washing... You'd be right. Lindsay will be chatting with us about the thing your mother told you to do before eating, but you never quite believed her. In terms of effective interventions in hospitals, hand washing ranks right up there. And uh, Professor Grayson will be telling us why. Dr. Perinatal is our favourite mother, baby psychiatrist, and we are indeed very proud to have her as a regular member of our team, but she called in unwell this morning. So we wish her all the best and a very, very speedy recovery. Now, Sundays on Radiotherapy wouldn't be complete without Nurse Epi Ben. She will catch us up on the latest in the medical literature, jetting in from Perth, yeah? Yep. Especially for the show. Your dedication is unparalleled. With this much medicine, we actually need an item number. So stick with us on Radiotherapy for the next hour. Good morning, Epi Ben. Good morning. Mel. Mel. Good morning, Mel. I was and, waiting for the Mel. Oh, sorry, sorry. And good morning, Mel. And yeah. our lovely guests today. Our lovely guests. Welcome, Professor Grayson. G'day. And welcome, Andrew. Good morning. Now, lots of stuff happening in the news lately. Um, The big, big, big news was the uh, euthanasia report uh, uh, handed down by an expert panel. And this was, uh, I think, given to Parliament. And this was a panel chaired by uh, former AMA President, Professor Brian Aller. And it outlined how an assisted dying scheme would work in Victoria. It had uh, 66 recommendations. This will not become law if it is does indeed become law, if it is passed as legislation, um, in, until 2019. So it's going to be voted on. It hasn't become law. This is just a sort of an outline of what it could look like. This will be voted on probably in August by the Victorian Parliament. Have you guys heard much about it? Has it made, uh, made into your consciousness? Snippets. Yeah? 
So let me just tell you what this looks like. <clears throat> and this I got this from the ABC News website, which is really good. It actually contains the 256-page report, which I tried to go through last night. Um, so basically, this is how uh, the proposed laws would work. Only a patient can initiate the uh, assisted dying process. So you have to put your hand up if you're the patient. Somebody else can't do it for you. You have to be an Australian citizen or a permanent resident and over 18 years of age, which means that concerns about people flying into Australia specifically for these rule, for these laws, it kind of assuages those uh, concerns a bit. You've got to put a request in. You've got to be seen by two doctors. The doctors have got to have a, a significant amount of experience, past fellowship exams, done specialist trainings and so forth. Um, then you've got to have uh, you've got to give a written request witnessed by two people those the, the people can't be related to you in, in any way or be a beneficiary and then um, I think you then uh, have to see a doctor again has a word uh, the patient makes a written declaration and this must be witnessed finally the patient makes a third and final request to the medical practitioner and there's got to be a minimum of 10 days between the first and last request then they get the medication they can take it for themselves and that's the proposed law in a nutshell. What do you think of that? It, does one of those clinicians reviewing the patient have to be a psychiatrist? Uh, according to what I read here, I can't see anything that says that, but the, pa- but the patient must be of sound mind, um, is, or some other words uh, alluding to that. So if there are concerns about cognitive capacity, there would be a cognitive assessment, which is often done by a psychiatrist or a neuropsychologist. So, yeah, but it doesn't say they have to be a psychiatrist, no. Would you go to a psychiatrist to decide if you had a sound mind? Would, you, would I go to a psychiatrist? I'd always go to a psychiatrist. See one every morning in the mirror. Um, I, I think, you know, there are often questions about capacity, Sure. Especially when people are uh, at a difficult point in their life or when they're suffering from a terminal illness or, in fact, any illness. And so psychiatrists are often involved in those decisions, yeah. Or those assessments, I should say. Mm. So um, my mum reviewed her will and the lawyer had did a little mini capacity test on her to, because before he could approve that she was of sound mind oh, to right. sign it off. Yeah. Um, because if he was found to not... Um, review those or ask those little questions, he could be in a lot of trouble. So she had a will from many years ago and then we changed um, who was going to be executors of the will and that was really all we changed. And it was then in those days, like more than 10 years, about 10 pages and now it's just two pages. But that was something that he had to check capacity. And he was a lawyer doing that. A lawyer doing a capacity exam. That's interesting. I wonder what questions they asked. Do you know what questions he asked? Um, just general chit chat. So yeah. the date, the time, who were her children, where did she live, um, was she, uh, what work did she do, mm-hmm. how many properties did she own. It was more. It was not in. You know, you had to count back from sevens from a hundred. <laughs> One of those yeah. tests. So basic memory and orientation. Mm. That's mm. pretty good. Mm. Yeah, I think it's pretty common, um, whether it's in medicine or outside medicine, where we make a judgment about whether someone's with this. You know, talking sense, and there's actually a legal requirement at mm. lots of different levels. That you don't need to be a psychiatrist in the hospital for the, you know, the the resident or the registrar to make a decision whether mm. the elderly person who seems to be a bit forgetful is still of sound mm. mind. They're mm. allowed to be forgetful and and yet still be of sound mind. So it's, I can't see why I'd really need a psychiatrist because we have to do it all the time. In fact, it's the opposite. The hard thing is to decide if someone is not of sound mind 
and um, and that's when you probably need a, a, a you know more careful uh, thorough investigation because to label someone as being not of sound mind has lots and lots of consequences. Absolutely, and I think you know when it's black and white, it's easy. Yeah, it's those grey areas where you need someone to come in and who's yeah. got formalised testing to actually do that sort of stuff. Absolutely, you know, just uh, what you were saying before, EpiPen. I remember <clears throat> I was a bit worried about my dad. This is about ten years ago, and I think you know is his memory slipping? So he was a share trader. He used to trade shares. So I said, Dad, do you do you know what um, what uh, the price of BHP was yesterday? He said, opening, cl- opening closing, <laughs> midday volume. What do you want? It's like, okay, fine. You're absolutely fine. <laughs> Put me in my place. Yeah, I think the problems when you stop in the middle of Camberwell Junction and you're looking at your Melways, then maybe uh, <laughs> you, you might want to worry about it then, but not otherwise. You know, the other interesting thing about this law or this proposed law, I should say, is that um, there are other places in the world that have obviously been doing this for a while, that is assisted dying, um, places such as uh, Canada, the Netherlands, Belgium, uh, a couple of US states. And Dr. Aller said that the Victorian model was closest to the one being used in Oregon. This is in the States for the last 20 years. And there, uh, 0.39%, according to the, to the ABC website, uh, of all deaths were medically assisted. And that would equate to about 150 in Victoria. So it's not going to be, according to this, a, a groundswell of people suddenly requesting this and it being enacted. It, it seems like a fairly smallish number. I mean, it's 150 people is a lot of people, but in terms of the number of, uh, relatively, it doesn't seem it's going to be overwhelmingly large, which again assuages some of the concerns I think that some people had. Interesting days in Victoria. So um, a little while ago, one of the esteemed doctors on this program who is a neurologist who looks after people with motor neurone disease was speaking and he was saying that quite a a few of those patients have had enough and they talk about the difference or the time length it takes to to die. So if they stop eating... Yep. Uh, um, it's seven seven days. If they stop drinking, it's two to three days, and um, they can actively do that to yep. end their life. And it's not doesn't seem like a really nice way to go. No, no. You know, I think as a doctor, it's easy to keep someone alive and give them a good life, but it's often very hard to <clears throat> give them a good death. And um, in fact, if I think of the five worst things I've done in my life, probably four out of five have been not able. to being unable to help someone who you know is really suffering and and by choice has had enough and yet it's difficult. So I think this is a good thing and I think my sense is that people, there'll be some who oppose it, well they don't have to get involved but for many others um, I think you know, for those of who've lived through where parents have died mm. and, and they've really suffered, I think this is a very welcome <clears throat> thing in my view at least. Well, it also speaks to the role of the doctor, Lindsay. What, you know, is our role to prolong life is our role to alleviate suffering and they're not always a hundred percent overlapping and uh it's a thing I was, I was saying to you before the show uh the role of the doctor is something that's very hard to pin down mm-hmm. you know it's you know we're used to doctors you know making us feel better and alleviating pain and getting rid of our pneumonia or dengue fever or whatever but what is at core what are we supposed to do you know, and I think one of the things about this legislation, which is interesting, is it won't compel doctors who have a conscientious objection from doing it. So you can't be, you know, a doctor can't be forced into being part of this program, which is which is good too, because not everybody wants to be part of it. On to some brighter news, um, or some lighter news, I should say. 
you were telling me about your mobile phone going out and is this uh, some medical yeah, relationship? Uh, yeah, so I, my mum recently died mm. and um, a friend rang up from her phone in her car and said, oh, I'm really sorry to hear about your mum. And, mm. and I thought I could hear that she was on, in the car and mm. I said, are you in the car? And she said, yeah, yeah, but it's Bluetooth. Mm. And I have a real aversion to people speaking on in the car. I know if you it's quick, mom. it's quick. If you if you want a quick, I'm I'm around the corner. Okay, but there's some really good. There's a good study. But I'll just go back. I just wanted to say that this was a person trying to say something nice to me, and she couldn't give me the time of day to pull over and say something genuinely. Oh, it's more etiquette, you think? And rather. well, I just felt like, oh, you know, oh, here's a traffic light. Oh, Pen, I'm sorry, but you know, keep mm, driving. Mm, mm-hmm. When yeah. I when you're talking to somebody who's lost a, mm. a mother, mm. I would like her to pull over and think that she's really with mm, me, mm, not. Mm, mm. You know, with two thousand people on the road. So it's more about etiquette than about dangerous. Being well, done? well, I wanted to support it. Why I said to because I said to her, <laughs> so you look for evidence to I, prove your thank opinion. Thank you, thank you. I said to her, I don't speak to people on the phone because uh, a friend. Well, I work. In, I was talking to a patient and she nearly went through a red light. Yeah. And so we have a policy in our office, in where I work at a teaching hospital, not to speak to people on the phone while or while they're driving. Mm. We make them pull over or we'll call them back. So I thought, please, please, I'll just Google and see if I can find some evidence. So there is some evidence, a Perth study, yeah. just back from Perth, yeah. where they looked at people driving on the uh, uh, with a hands-free and holding their phone. Yeah. And the long on the short... So, sorry, sorry, sorry. Hands-free holding the phone? So, sorry, hands-free and others holding the phone. So a Bluetooth versus somebody holding it to their ear. Okay, so there's two groups. Two groups. Bluetooth or you're actually holding the phone whilst you're driving? Correct. Gotcha. And they followed them up. And at in ED after they'd presented for a car accident, so yeah. there were significant accidents because they ended up in hospital, yeah. and they looked at their phone records and compared um, how what what the time interval around their accident, who had been on the phone and who hadn't been on the phone, right. and then they reviewed, asked them had they used um, were they hand holding or was it a Bluetooth. And um, they did have nurses that would go and review and try and get some history from the cars if they had permission. So some people would might potentially say, oh, no, 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 it was Bluetooth, I wasn't holding it. But overall, all I wanted to say was there's really, really good evidence in this study that's published in a, the BMJ, so that's the British Medical Journal, yeah. which is a very prestigious journal, and it showed that it was the same, that whether you're hand-holding or whether you're on Bluetooth because it's under this thing called distraction and you don't give yourself the full um, confidence of driving. You're not giving it undivided attention. So all these distractions <clears throat> and they compared it. They also like... <laughs> I'm fratting. Yeah. Good for no, radio. No, no. All I just wanted to say was that really that there was no difference. You still can have accidents and saying a Bluetooth is not helpful. It's not. Yeah. And I, I really but, hope my mum's not listening because she says it to me all the time when I'm calling her from the car on Bluetooth. She says, no, 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 no. You've got to pull over. I said, Mal. Oh, mum. No, but this is, but, but, but by your logic or the, by the logic that you are proposing, then I shouldn't be talking to my passenger because it is distracting. Uh, uh, 
Let me, oh, I digress. So, oh, okay. No, I don't digress. I'm yeah. getting back to the story. So they did compare it to people talking in the car. Yeah. So you can talk to people in the car because you can say, hang on a second. You can also say, um, because they're engaged in the driving with you, if you've got a passenger in the front and they can see a red light, they might stop talking or they might, if they're a driver. But kids, you do, That's a, they didn't look at kids. But they certainly said that driving and having a conversation in the car, you can factor that in and it's, that's okay. But these distractions where you're taken away on a conversation is not the same as having a chat in a car. Yeah, I was actually just going to make the same point that um, you, know, you have the visual cues if you're in the car with the, with the driver. You, coming up to a tri- tricky right hook turn, you're going to stop talking for a moment. Um, and I guess the other point to make is oh, that um, uh, you know there was recent media about the fact that cyclists can now be fined uh, for using their mobile phone uh, without parking, and there's a lot of discussion about what the definition of parking on a bike is. Um, <laughs> just as a non-driver, as a bike rider, I just thought I'd add in a little um, cycling um, parenthesis. I just want to know how it all compares to screaming children in the back tossing ice cream around on the you know, leather upholstery because I think that's the biggest distraction of oh, all. Excuse me, you do learn to ignore children? <laughs> <laughs> how old are you, Pam? <laughs> um, that's, that's actually fascinating because I, I was trying to... You know, you're actually right. In the back of my mind, I was thinking, yeah, there is a qualitative difference between speaking to a passenger and... Um, talking to this disembodied voice coming through a speaker and I was trying to put my finger on it. And Andrew, you did, you're right, because my passenger will also be aware of the cognitive influences approaching and meter their conversation uh, or actually point something out like, hey, Dad, you missed the turn or, or something like that. Very nice point. Ah, so, so mum's right. Yep, your mum is very right. <laughs> Don't tell Get that. off the phone when you're driving. You are listening to Radiotherapy. It is 20 minutes past 10 o'clock. <clears throat> we are here on Triple R and in um, about uh, how long? In about one minute's time, we're going to be speaking with uh, Professor Lindsay Grayson about hand washing. And if you think you knew everything about hand washing, you are so wrong. <clears throat> Lindsay's going to tell us why I should be washing my hands. I mean, really, is it? Th- I'm, I'm not joking. Lindsay, is it that important? It's probably the number one thing, at least in hospitals, uh, that you can do to stop the spread of bugs between patients and obviously staff and patients and then shared equipment and patients, absolutely. So um, I think the irony of it is it's not particularly sexy or, uh, you know, if you think of where where the research institutes on hand hygiene, that sort of thing, so the the dollars in NHMRC grants, but it's uh, made a huge difference. So uh, obviously more than 150 years ago, um, there was evidence that hand hygiene, as we call it, rather than hand washing, can make a difference in terms of disease transmission. But if you look at medical curricula and nursing curricula, and it's only in the last few years that actually it's even been part of that. I mean, it's a separate thing if we talk about surgical scrubbing in theatre, of course, in operating theatre, that's a different matter but um so the big change has been the use of alcohol-based hand rub which includes a skin softener so that when you use it repeatedly actually instead of drying your hands which soap and water can Mm, do if mm -hmm. you're doing that a lot um, not only does alcohol rub work very fast so in 15 seconds it does what soap and water would take 45 to seconds to a minute to do um but also it's actually better for your hands because soap can be very damaging in terms of depleting your hands of the natural oils and so forth that are necessary to maintain skin integrity and and also keep the healthy bacteria that we all have on our hands and protect our hands from 
uh, dangerous germs that, you know, soap and, if you repeatedly soap and water wash or particularly detergents, as many mums or dads who do the home duties will know, your hands can become very chafed and that's, that's bad also. So alcohol hand rubbers made a huge difference. Um, this is, I've always wanted to have a chat with somebody about this. <clears throat> so, you know, when you go into a, uh, toilet, a men's room yep. and you wash your hands, um, so many people come out of that, uh, of the toilet with their hands still wet. Like they don't dry their hands properly. Now, is that a problem or is it just wet hands? Doesn't matter. Uh, it depends whether they use soap and <clears throat> obviously and how, but, um, look, it's not, uh, drying is also important, um, and, um, I can't answer that specific question. I think the question is how often do people even wash their hands when they've been to the toilet? But certainly if you go out to Melbourne Airport and you come out of the men's room, <laughs> I, I would say it's about 30%. But, yeah, that's an interesting uh, study. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and also it, it conjures up lots of things we maybe don't want to think about. There was an interesting study a few years ago where um, one of the docs started culturing the in, the handle of the, the oh, toilet handle yeah, on the inside yeah, of the yeah, bathroom yeah, on aeroplanes. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's a lot of bugs on there. So um, in different places, it's important. So this is, again, this is, you know, there's a, uh, like, um, there's a chain of events that happens after you wash your hands or don't wash your hands. And I've often thought the same thing. Like, why? Sh- I mean, of course, I'm going to wash my hands. But should I wash my hands after I open the door or just snip open the door because there's going to be bugs on there? Or should yeah. I wash my hands before? Yep. So these are all important considerations. Well, you know, they're all risks in life, aren't they? I mean, this is where we can kind of get a little bit over the top and OCD um, because, of course, we're exposed to bugs all the time and... and and we know that yep. there are problems if your you know, mm-hmm. immune system's weakened because of cancer chemotherapy or something like that. That's why people get infections. Um, so we've all got natural barriers to prevent all those sort of things. I think the issue in hospitals is, is quite different because if you think about hospitals, you know, we, it's, they're pretty insane places, aren't they? I mean, you take all these sick people with infections and you force them into <laughs> one building and very often we force them to share bathrooms with each other and then we're surprised because there's transmission mm. of organisms well, you know, you could have spoken to Florence Nightingale 100 years ago and she would have said, well, you separate, geographically separate infected patients from uninfected patients, mm. but we don't do that. We push them into one hospital. So I think it's, you know, it's these simple things like alcohol hand rub and, and reducing the <coughs> transmission from one patient to the next. And you can, I mean, we've, we've uh, in, our, in Hand Hygiene Australia, you know, we have 960 hospitals reporting to us three times a year. And you look at some of the uh, data from that, and, you know, there are some clinicians who will walk from patient to patient to patient to patient. You know, they can go to 15 patients without... Uh, hand rubbing and you know it's absolutely unacceptable well it's just the luck of the draw whether the infected patient's number one or number 15 Mm -hmm. and where you are in the sequence so So how do you how do you get this data is there somebody there watching this yeah so the hand um so hand hygiene australia which is funded by the government the australian commission for safety and quality in healthcare has spent um i guess we've had over two and a half thousand workshops now there's more than five and a half thousand staff around Mm -hmm. the country who are trained to audit hand hygiene in the World Health Organization five moments manner so a standard auditing tool so that you can compare apples with apples and hospital to hospital and in fact we can compare ourselves to Switzerland and many other countries that also use this auditing tool and um, so we've got lots of data and that data is split down into nurses, doctors and so forth in different wards. So. Uh, So just to come back to this do you have like little spies that go into hospital and follow people around? 
Uh, and well, how do I get the job? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, job. actually, I don't like your attitude there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, what we've actually—it's important concept though, because the auditors or the nurses usually yeah. um, who are doing this, you know, there was an attitude initially. Like, so this, the national program started in two thousand eight mm-hmm. nine and had a huge impact in terms of improvement in hand mm-hmm. hygiene yeah. in hospitals and disease reduction. So, as an example, at my hospital at the Austin in two thousand one, we had sixty two patients who had Golden Staff bloodstream infections. You know, yep. really serious yeah. multi resistant infections. And last year we had six, and the only so t- you know. 90% reduction and the only thing we've done systematically has been improve hand hygiene and that's been wow. mirrored all around yeah. the country where there's been a greater than 50% overall reduction in golden staff infections, bloodstream infections, so very serious infections so that's not counting all the other minor things. Sure. So I think that just to come back to your question about the police um, <laughs> uh, I think that's where we need to transition from is that all these this auditing is there to help people do a better Excellent. job and so what we actually moved to is not just that they stand there and watch someone doing mm-hmm. badness that they say stop stop and mm-hmm. that this is and so it's moved into an educational mm-hmm. role and it's very clear that in those states that have an auditing program where they integrate education and interruption of bad behavior with education mm-hmm. that their hand hygiene rates have gone up massively mm-hmm. faster than those where they just stand there and watch mm-hmm. bad behavior and don't do anything about mm-hmm. it. So, and that's very good, Lindsay. Um, also, patients are now looking at um, people yep. wiping their hands. So, uh, my sister was recently in hospital, and she would keep an eye on people at the door. <laughs> and there was one a, a, a little plunger at the end of her bed, but also outside her room, and she couldn't monitor if the people mm. at the outside the door were plunging or and rubbing their hands. Mm. So, she would also say, "Have you done that?" Mm. Or there's mm. a plunger at the end of my mm. bed. So, mm. I think that's a really good thing, and also. Um, at the hospitals, certainly at the Alfred, you can't walk past um, every at the front entrance. There's little plungers with the hand hygiene antiseptic everywhere. So mm. there's, a, I think, that educating the relatives and patients themselves is really mm. good too. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's right. You know, we don't we have a sign at the Austin saying we don't want you to bring your bugs into our hospital, mm. um, nor do we want you to take ours home. I can. In brackets, we don't have it say that ours are worse than the ones they've got at home. So, <laughs> but I, I can tell you they probably are. Um, but but yes, you're right, and I think that's an important <clears throat> lesson for a lot of the healthcare workers because they say, "Oh, I'll, I'll rub my hands." But for the patient, you should expect to see them rubbing their hands, and that's why having the product positioned at the foot of the bed is critical. And and it's sort of like a habit, you know. If you get in a cab in New York and there's no <laughs> seat belt and you're driving around, you feel uncomfortable. Mm, or if mm, you mm. use your bowels and you can't wash your hands, mm. it's built hardwired mm. into us, like you'd walk a kilometre to wash your mm. hands after mm. going mm. to the toilet. Mm. Um, and I think we need to move healthcare workers to the point where, and patients, the expectation that they're rubbing their hands as they walk up to you and they're rubbing their hands as they walk away from you. You're absolutely right, Penn. You know, at the hospital where we work at, um, you can't walk, I don't know, more than 50 steps without bumping into one of these hand hygiene stations. And they're super easy to use as well. In fact, they're fun to use because they're they're automatic. Like you put your hand under, it's got a little radar or whatever, and it squirts out the stuff. And it's that one of the the rules of behavioural psychology is that access is one of the predictors of behaviour change. If you've got these things close by, and it's in your face, you're much more likely to use it than you have to go around and hunt and it's difficult and turn on a tap and, you know, whatever. So I'm wondering, what else can you do to make hand washing, you know, in your words, sexy, to make it 
something that just is in your consciousness the whole time? Uh, look, I think it, it really comes down <clears throat> to education and yeah. reinforcement and um, just sort of changing the way we do things. I mean, it, it's sort of got often gone unrecognised, but uh, a year or so back, the College of Surgeons here in Australia actually made it mandatory that all the surgical trainees had to pass or be credentialed in alcohol hand rubbing, mm. not surgical scrubbing, but uh, the training program that we have online before they're allowed to sit their exams. Uh, you know, in Switzerland, they have it. If you're a med student, you're doing your exams and your clinical exam where you're examining people and you don't alcohol hand rub, you automatically lose a third of your marks. Third, you know, so, Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it depends what? on that. There, there are those things. And then I yeah. think also, too, that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you, you know, it's obvious. Why aren't people hand rubbing? Well, okay, it's obvious that you shouldn't drink drive and it's obvious that you shouldn't drive while talking on your Bluetooth uh, <coughs> epi. I well, don't know how obvious that is. Yeah, <laughs> those sort of things. But I think that it just needs to be reinforced and we've had 150 years of medical education and nursing education where it hasn't been and to now suddenly expect in seven or eight years yeah, that it's yeah. going to suddenly change. But, you know, having said that, the hand hygiene rates nationally have gone from just over 35% where we started and then quickly up to 55 and now it's sitting at 82%. If you were to sit, as I did a few years ago, next to a relative in the middle of the night, you know that's not 82% in the middle of the night and I think that, you know, having that sort of 24-hour clock uh, auditing and so forth will will improve things. And you were saying before that uh, hand hygiene uh, is one of the most significant factors in the decline in the rates of Golden Staff transmission. That's pretty astounding. I mean... Absolutely, but it's only one of the things, you know, I mean, do we have a national policy, you know, we have a national policy for hand hygiene, but do we have a national policy for cleaning hospitals? Like, what products should you use? How often should it be cleaned? Well, there is no... I mean, even within Victoria, every hospital would have a slightly different... Now, that's insane to me. Mm. And yet, obviously... Hand hygiene works for skin germs like Golden Staph, mm. but what about bowel germs, which are the new ones which are, you know, you're about to talk with Andrew about antibiotic resistance? Well, the new frontier are in all these bowel gut organisms where there's, you know, uh, really major problems with antibiotic resistance. Well, they're mainly transmitted, you know, in the bathroom and all the places where you defecate and, and yeah. where there's contact. Well, that's all about cleaning. So hand hygiene will make a bit of a difference to those, but it's probably only 10% of the problem versus 90% related to cleaning and shared equipment. On the other hand, for skin germs like Golden Staff, it's hand hygiene is probably 70% of the issue and things like intravenous drips and how you manage those and so forth is the other 30%. So we're we're talking now about hospitals and large healthcare institutions. Mm. What about other places where you think hand hygiene uh, needs to come up a notch? Well, I think it needs to be seen as part of a package of things. And pretty soon, you know, we talk about infection control in hospitals, but really it's... You could say there's infection control at home and infection control in the community. So, for instance, we know overseas, and I guess you'll get onto this with Andrew, that uh, some of the food we eat, you know, if, if there's been a lot of antibiotic use, particularly overseas, not so much in Australia, you know, in America, for instance, 85% of the antibiotics used are in agriculture, not in mm. hospitals. And so 
at home when you're preparing your meals and so forth, whether you call it infection control or just good practice, you probably shouldn't use the same chopping board and knife that you use on your chicken as on your vegetables. And you should wash your hands between handling raw meat, you know, especially lower quality cuts like hamburger meat and so forth or sausages before you go and wash your hands before you go and and handle other parts of the food or, or your plates and cups and things. So... You know, it's a bit different to alcohol mm. hand rub. You don't need alcohol hand rub to do that because we know we've done many studies that soap and water washing in that situation is equally effective. It's just that, you know, if you're an intensive care nurse at the Austin, you have 26 to 30 hand, what we call hand hygiene moments per hour. And if you were soap and water hand washing, you spend half your hour just washing your hands mm. and the soap mm. would destroy your hands. So alcohol hand rub works well and very effectively there but at home soap and water works just as well and um, in in terms of cleaning off the sort of bugs we're talking about here. So um, I had a little boy that was admitted to a hospital and they the advice from the paediatrician he was unwell but they the paediatrician said get him home get him in the garden get him dirty get him you know, amongst the bugs. Eat the dirt. Eat the dirt. So I, I kind of, you have to juggle that um, health model where you go nuts about cleaning the kitchen bench and cleaning everything at home versus the kids need exposure to um, bugs mm. and so that your immune system's challenged. And what, what, what do you say to that, Lindsay? Uh, look, I agree. I mean, mm. I think it's just about being sensible and, you know, we often get queries about people wanting to use alcohol hand rub at home. Well, it's pretty crazy, really. Uh, just normal ha- stuff that your mum's taught you is fine. But there are certain moments, like I was saying, with food preparation <clears throat> probably. Um, That's salmonella. I, 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 yeah, yeah. salmonella. Well, salmonella and all those different things. And, you know, um, yeah. So uh, I think it's just certain moments. But the rest, I mean, after all, we've all evolved in a way where we have an immune system that protects us um, from all those different bugs. And I think, you know, there is growing evidence, as, as you know, about, you know, whether this uh, increase in asthma and allergies mm-hmm. is partly related mm-hmm. to... For want of a better term, the nanny state, you know, overly protecting. It's hard to know about that, but something is changing. Having said all that, you know, um, that's out in the community, in the hospitals where we're really forcing the situation. We're like, for those who are medically trained, you know, a PCR machine where you put in one patient and it quickly multiplies up and spreads to everyone else. I mean, that's what hospitals really are, and, I, and we do need a different situation. <laughs> hospitals are a big PCR machine, right? A big PCR machine, yeah. Do you know, here's, here's a, a bit of psychological advice. If you want people to do something, you positively reinforce it. I reckon you get hand hygiene points, like frequent flight. Every time you put your hand on a little thing, it registers, hey, it's Dr. Mal, I get a point. Yeah, well, we've actually, we've actually looked at that because and, 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 it's a perfect system, as you say, yeah. that um, you know, especially if it was linked to your pay packet, yeah, that would be go. even better, you wouldn't it? Yeah, 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 get a bonus. You get people queuing up. <laughs> but, you know, there's a technical issue, and that is most to do that, mm. uh, and this will sound very boring, but your name tag that we yeah. all have in our hospitals, to do that, the machine has to recognise that it's you, and that means that your name tag has to actually transmit. A, yeah. So it means it needs a battery, whereas at the moment it's just got a little barcode that you sweep. So there are some issues uh, about that. But um, yeah, even at a lesser standard, there have been... Look, I think 
everyone who's working in health wants to do a good job. Yeah, they true. want to look after patients. It's not that they're bad and they're bad because they don't do it. They just forget. <clears> and, you know, some of this is generational, but uh, I think it's more just about reminding and sort of to come back to the seatbelt idea to get it into a habit that you wouldn't get into a car and you actually would feel weird if you didn't put on your yeah. seatbelt. Well, we need healthcare workers to feel weird if they don't use alcohol. So the example that springs to mind you say that since the drought and the... Um and the, the water laws, I feel weird. Like if I go travelling overseas and people have the tap turning on, like when they're brushing their teeth or doing the dishes, I'm thinking, no, you can't wait. And it's, it, is, it is purely the last 10 years or so that has changed the culture um, or my internal culture that I just feel it's wrong not to, you know, to do yeah. something like that. And I think it, you're right, it's the same thing with uh, hand washing. So um, we're about to go off and wash our hands. Thank you so much, <laughs> Lindsay, for taking us through that. Andrew Stewartson, mate. Um, I have seen your face around uh, the hospital. I've often wondered what you do. You look um, as if you're doing something very important, um, and clearly you are. Tell us what tell us tell us what you do at um, at your local institute. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I do a few different things, but um, one of them is to treat patients with infections, mm-hmm. and then I, I spend a bit of time also working to try and prevent infections, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that's partly what Lindsay's been talking about, mm-hmm. promoting things like hand hygiene, and uh, also uh, reducing the spread of infections around uh, hospitals, and I guess in infection control departments in hospitals, a lot of what we're thinking about nowadays is antibiotic resistance, mm-hmm. or uh, drug-resistant infections. And so, You know, I've just by the by, you know, when I look at Google News in the morning, um, the the health section not infrequently has you know headlines about uh, the da- the looming crisis of antibiotic resistance and how it's it's this cresting wave that's about to sort of you know wash over us. Is it I mean, is that hyperbole or, or Tinkum? No, I think that's uh, that's fair to say. Amongst all the looming crises, that's one of them. Um, <laughs> we've got a few, don't we? But. Um you know, the, the WHO have, have called, have said that we're at risk of the post-antibiotic future. In fact, we have entered potentially the start of the post-antibiotic future, which is a scary concept. Kind of a dystopian microbiological future. A little future. bit dystopian, exactly. Yeah. Um, and we've only had antibiotics for a relatively short period of time. Uh, so there, could, there were people born who were born before antibiotics really were, were sort of mm. used 70, 70 years ago or so. Mm. Uh, and, and so that's a, a big problem. Mm. Um, and it's a big problem because... Uh, not only will we have problems treating the kinds of infections that you might think of, like pneumonia or urinary tract infections, but a lot of the progress that we've made in medicine over that period of time where we've had antibiotics has depended on the antibiotics. So if you think of uh, organ transplants or uh, treating cancers or um, putting in prosthetic joints, um, all sorts of surgeries, reducing the risk of infection, all of that progress to a large extent depends on antibiotics. And then if you think a little bit more broadly outside of human health, then uh, animal health as well and food production, uh, livestock agriculture, a lot of that has used antibiotics as well. Um, uh, Maybe uh, whether or not that's always a good thing uh, can be discussed. Um, But a lot of uh, health and economy depends on antibiotics, effective antibiotics. And so if we... I I guess it's uh, it's not too long a a bow to to say that it is a looming crisis. Mm -hmm. And in fact... Um, there was a report which is discussed a lot in these sorts of circles a couple of years ago uh, and uh, was commissioned by the, the, the government in the UK which suggested that um, currently there are about 700,000 people, uh, 700, people a year dying because of antibiotic resistance. Directly related to antibiotic resistance? It's always very difficult to get these numbers mm. um, but that was their best estimate at the mm. moment and 
even if it's hard to know at the moment what the situation is, it's even harder to know what's going to happen mm. in the future. Mm. Um, but again, their estimate, which is based on all sorts of assumptions, uh, was that uh, by the year uh, 2050, I think it was 10 million or so people would be dying and that we'd be um, spending, losing 50 trillion sort of, you know, huge numbers, whatever they are, um, uh, of, uh, of uh, sort of global economy um, per year. Uh, so it's a big problem. I think that's right. I think a similar report actually likened antibiotic <coughs> resistance or AM, AMR or drug-resistant infections, all the same thing, to that of terrorism and, and climate change as the three big topics that they're all going to have a similar effect. And, um, I mean, it's pretty insane. My mum was born in 1928, so uh, penicillin came along in 1940. So all her teenage years, she lived without antibiotics. If someone got meningococcal meningitis, 90% death rate, pneumonia, 30% death rate, so on and so forth. And then along comes this wonderful thing, penicillin. It's just in 1940, you know, Howard Florey, Australian, was very influential in that, got the Nobel Prize among, with others for that. So if you were standing on Mars or some planet and you looked down on a species like the human race, that in the lifetime of just my mum where you didn't have this product, you developed it and then you wasted it so it wasn't useful anymore, you'd say, well, well what morons are they? Well, that's humans. And um, it's moving fast. And uh, I don't know, Andrew, do you want to comment? But, of course, we worry about human health and ag you mentioned agriculture, but I think there's a recent study in the US where <coughs> 85% of the tonnage of antibiotics used in the US is actually used in agriculture. So this is about making chickens grow a little bit faster or, mm. you know, it's about intensive farming. And so we've moved, we wouldn't have, you know, there are chicken megacities now where on a few acres you might have 10 million chickens all stacked on top of each other, all defecating on the ones below and, you know, the spread of germs. So to, to allow that industrialisation of food production has required antibiotics in many mm. cases and it's pretty crazy. Andrew, do you want to... Yeah, I think that the best estimate that we have in Australia is that it's about 60% uh, of antibiotics. In Australia. Are used yeah. in agriculture. In, agri in, yeah. in animals anyway. Well, I guess that's mainly agriculture, but also companion animals. Right. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why it's quite challenging to do something about this issue, because it doesn't only... It involves several different sectors that don't necessarily always mm. communicate well with each other. So there's human health and there's animal health. Uh, there's Companion animals also. So a lot of antibiotics are used in the little pet dog or cat that's sick today. So. Mm. Exactly. So, and then there's within, anim within human health, there's hospital care and there's community care mm. Mm. and there's different um, bodies that regulate all of these different things. And, and so one of the biggest challenges with antibiotic resistance is to try and get these groups to talk together and to formulate sort of a unified, coordinated response. Mm. So, Andrew, why why aren't they making new antibody, uh, antibiotics? What's the problem yeah, there? Get a move on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> question, um, Epi. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, look, it's, it's hard, I guess, uh, and, and there have been. And, you know, since antibiotics first uh, were used, uh, as Lindsay said, uh, 1940 or, or so, uh, emergence always follows along uh, almost at the same time. So penicillin was immediately followed by penicillin resistance and so on. There's anti been antibiotics brought in ever since then over the last 70 years, always followed <coughs> pretty quickly by resistance. And uh, to some extent, um, there's, a, you know, uh, there's a problem here for development in that for companies developing antibiotics, it's not quite probably as appealing as developing a, a cholesterol tablet or a blood pressure tablet that a patient's going to be taking for the rest of their life. Antibiotics are used for relatively short periods of time. Uh, and so there's a lot of commercial factors that might drive pharmaceutical companies away from antibiotics and towards mm. other. And so 
that's actually been worked on and recognised over the last um, you know few years that, that we need a, a different um, model for developing mm. those antibiotic drugs that are, are quite valuable. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. So about 10 years ago, there were 20 companies that were uh, developing new drugs, and now there are three. And the reason is because there's more money in cholesterol drugs or Viagra and these things which are used very regularly, whereas antibiotics are only used infrequently. Mm. I think the other thing is that within the industry, there's been a, a major switch So if you uh, and a huge loss of jobs. So, for instance, in the pharmaceutical industry, the initial... Um, pressure was on natural products so you go to a very uh, ecologically diverse place like a rainforest where lots of things are surviving because they obviously produce something that allows them to survive and quite often those chemicals that allow them to survive are antibiotics so there was a switch sort of 15 years ago amongst many of the big producers to instead of doing that to look at the target site for where the drug would work and then sort of back work 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 backwards and so what it meant was that many of the companies ended up producing very similar products but all in a very with it with the same target and whereas you know nature's smarter than we are i mean these bugs have been around forever and as as andrew's just said you know as soon as i mean at the moment our infection control in hospitals and out in the community and our complete misuse of these products is so crazy that even if we develop a new drug you know well as doctors we kind of compete to see who can write the first paper to describe the first case of resistance you know and and that's the problem too so even if we had a new drug at the moment we'd waste it i think we would yeah do the same thing that we've done with the other drugs so andrew would you like to comment on what the pharmacists do and the registrars and in the hospitals about monitoring um prescribing of antibiotics right so i guess there are a few different things that we can try let me just take a step back I think um, antibiotic resistance is is inevitable, and that's I, I, a few of the things we've said have, have been about that. So, as Lindsay said, resistance has been around for a long time, probably you know tens of millions or billion years, as long as there have been sort of bacteria floating around trying to compete for for space. So, by using antibiotics, we're selecting for those uh, resistance mechanisms as well. Uh, so it's going to happen, but one of the things we can do is to reduce the use of antibiotics, and that will reduce the speed with which resistance to antibiotics develops. Um, and so one of the things that, that you're alluding to is that in hospitals, there's uh, antibiotic stewardship programs, uh, and that's where we try and make sure that antibiotic use is appropriate. Uh, and appropriate use means um, that pa- pa- patients who don't need antibiotics don't receive antibiotics and we, we don't just sort of say, well, this patient might have an infection, let's give them mm. broad-spectrum antibiotic mm. that kills everything. Mm. Uh, and then those patients that do need antibiotics, we're trying to target specifically what they need rather than giving them something which kills absolutely everything, um, which is more likely to drive resistance. So mm. a lot of work is being done and I think Australia is is quite good on this front we've got national sort of uh, systems for antimicrobial stewardship to try and make sure that we're we're limiting um the use of antibiotics and therefore doing as much as we can to slow the emergence of resistance and travel um there was a great four corners program talking about the bugs in quagmire and you know um anyway comment about travel yeah sure so and this is a, why we talk about One Health uh, with antibiotic resistance. One Health is sort of the catchphrase because, we're, as we said, we're talking about human health and animal health. And you also can't think of one country in isolation. We're all part of um, the sort of globalised world. And there are some countries, for various reasons, which have a higher uh, rate of um, 
of antibiotic resistance in the food and the water and the environment. Uh, and just by travel to such countries and coming back, you're, you're going to be more, more likely to be colonised by resistant bacteria. And if you get hospitalised, you're more likely to get infections with those bacteria. I remember I um, uh, was in a lecturer when I was in medical school saying uh, one of the, the biggest threats to, uh, to us from, a, from a, a bacteriological cause was the 747. You know, right. people travelling a lot, bringing stuff in, going away, all that sort of stuff, yeah. Yep. You know, I think the other thing is we haven't mentioned is antibiotic <coughs> use out in the community in Australia is number seventh or eighth over-prescribed, top of the list of over-prescribing. So it's sort of like we're wealthy, we want our antibiotics. <coughs> um, but having said all that, you know, the question is what can we do about it? And there are places, you know, that we need better uh, coordination. We, there's been a recent summit calling for a national coordinating authority and I think we do need better <coughs> coordination. It's not like hand hygiene or cleaning hospitals is a super complicated thing. We just need to do it in a standardised way. But also we should look to other countries. So, for example, just talking about the community prescribing, in some of the Scandinavian countries, a GP who sees a patient where they actually order a urine culture to prove what the germ is rather than just giving you antibiotics without ordering, they get paid a bit more. So in other words, you structurally set it up so that if you investigate and prove the infection at and you would still give the patient the script, but you'd say, look, call back tomorrow Mm -hmm. and we will tell you whether you need to continue taking your tablets or whether you should switch tablets or even whether you should start your prescription if you're not sufficiently sick to need it today. Those sort of changes in our health system could make a big difference. So it's an out of the sort of from uh, a different way of looking at things, but there are, it's not like this is a mystery. There have been successful programs done elsewhere and I think we're at a point uh, and we have a fabulous health system here in Australia, nationally coordinated, where we could do some of these new things, or not so new, but in a more coordinated way that could make a really big difference. Andrew, do you, what do you think about it? Yeah, you're, you're right. The, 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 the things that we know work uh, are relatively simple, aren't they? Mm. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, trying to implement them uh, effectively. So things yeah. like rewarding positive behaviour or a structural change, prove an infection before you actually treat an infection type yeah, of thing. I guess it's always a, it's a mix. It's a complicated system and it's yeah. a mix of different interventions. One of the things that we know Australia has done very well is to be protective of a particular class of antibiotics, which are quite precious, uh, called quinolones. Yeah. Uh, and so to prescribe those, uh, you know, a doctor would need to call um, the authority in Canberra and get uh, an approval number. Uh, right. And so Australia's probably done better than most other countries in protecting that precious class now, of drugs. Now let me scratch my head. Would that be, is that an expensive drug? Uh, well, I guess the most important thing about it is that it's very effective um, at treating resistant infections. Uh, well, you know, that you're raising a good point because it, it's not effective because we have the PBS and so the script it actually doesn't cost much. But the real cost, if you had to pay the full price, it is very expensive. So, you know, people don't realise, they think that all these drugs are cheap. I mean, there's some, I mean, the big picture is for hospitals, some of the drugs are now ridiculously cheap. Mm. So, for example, if I should be prescribing penicillin, a very narrow spectrum, yeah. well, the alternative drug called keftraxin, it's 70 cents a day, but penicillin, because there's hardly any manufacturers anymore, is $15 a day. So for me to do the whoa, right... Whoa, 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 just back up. Yeah. Penicillin is, what, uh, 20 times more expensive than keftraxin. Correct. So a day's, <laughs> a day's worth of intravenous keftraxin is 70 cents, and to do the right thing and use penicillin in our hospital is $15 a day for intravenous penicillin. So there are all these kind of really weird distortions, and so the pharmacy department, if they were just being 
financial rationalists, we'd just be using, you know, the biggest manufacturer of antibiotics now is India. Yeah. And no one monitors the waterways and the environment. And, uh, I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it, Andrew, that, I mean, the environment is suffering a lot from the waste of a lot of this antibiotic production too. That is absolutely astounding. And now we're getting into an area which, you know, it's about health economics and policy. We could spend an hour on this. We've got to have uh, you gentlemen back in the studio. So, Andrew, please come back. I know you've got a lot more you want to talk about and I really want to hear it. Uh, Lindsay, you're going to come back. Sure. I've got a promise on it. Uh, EpiPen, you're definitely going to come back. What an amazing show it's been this morning. The hour has just flown by here on uh, Radiotherapy. We, uh, we've got to go. Cheers. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.